these people are drug dealers. You can look at their lovely lifestyles and it looks nice and sanitized, but follow that down, you know, go down five, six people removed and you've got a young person in debt killing themselves. You know, those who were considered guilty of those sort of infractions were dealt with via punishment beatings or kneecappings or on some occasions, you know, executions. That was all meant to be part of our past. But clearly when something like this happens, you can see the past creeping back into the future. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It took two gunmen just 21 seconds to murder drug dealer Sean Fox with 20 bullets in a packed Belfast bar on October 2nd in an assassination which was planned, calm and ruthless. Captured on CCTV before and after the Sunday afternoon killing, the pair wore distinctive clothes and escaped on foot, disappearing into a Belfast housing estate without trace. So what does the murder tell us about the killers? And why was Sean Fox, a member of the so-called Marbella crew, targeted? Today, I'm talking to Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris, about the shocking daylight shooting, about Fox's links to murdered drug dealer Flash Jim Donegan, and about an assassin on a mission to rid Belfast of crime kingpins. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Those two gunmen that were seen walking into the Donegal Celtic Football Club have such an air of confidence about them from that small bit of CCTV we saw. Do you know anything about them or what's suspected? Well, first of all, I suppose in order to sort of get an idea of the scene, the the Suffolk Road where the Donegal Celtic um, Club would be, luckily it's just called the DC, but where that would be, it's quite a busy road. It's, you know, a, a sort of main road in West Belfast. It was half two on a Sunday. There would have been a lot of people around. Those gunmen presumably came from the nearby housing estate. They walked, as you've seen, with their hands in their pockets as if they were out for a Sunday stroll, went into the Donegal Celtic, and 21 seconds later, they are seen jogging out of, you know, out of the, the club. Um, and what they did was they crossed again across the main Suffolk Road and into the Lanadoon Estate, which is a, a sort of rabbit warren of, of houses with, um, you know, many would have sort of like back entries running off them. You could disappear in there and not be found quite easily. And also, as you can see from that CCTV, they're very casually dressed. They're dressed in sports clothes. They just have hooded sweatshirts up. They don't even have masks. They have sort of like a snood over their face, something that could very easily be taken down and you, they wouldn't have drew, you know, a second glance. I mean, had I been driving up that road, which I do many, many times, had I been driving up that road and seeing those two people, I don't think I'd have took, taken them under my notice at all. You know, um, they were clearly, you know, they, they blended completely in. The majority of the people who were in Donegal Celtic would have been dressed very similarly. Similarly, They walked straight in and walked to where Sean Fox was sitting. So Sean Fox, their victim, is sitting. He's sitting next to his uncle. Um, the bar is packed. There's over 100 people in it. The um, Merseyside Derby was on at the time. Um, Mr. Fox's daughter, I believe, was, was uh, in the bar at the time as well. They walked straight to him. The first gunman shot him in the head. And then both of those gunmen emptied the magazines from the automatic handguns that they had 
into Mr. Fox. Over 20 shots were fired in that very, very quick space of time. Um, nobody in the Donegal Celtic, I think, first of all, I think the surprise, they weren't even prepared for it. The speed at which it happened, I know that there were first aiders in the bar at the time, but Mr. Fox was dead within seconds. He was dead after the first shot. There was no point in even trying to administer any first aid to him. Um, and as you said, they walked very casually straight back out again. One of those gunmen is is believed to have been involved in numerous other killings before. But what I've been told from my sources is that the other one was new and that he was what I've been, I suppose, called an apprentice. I was going to say to you, don't tell me he's in training. On his first job out. Um, and, you know, you can see that it would make sense if you were organising this sort of vigilante style army. You wouldn't just want one hitman within that. It makes sense to have more than one. And so um, what my sources are telling me is one was a very established gunman and the other one, that was the first time he'd killed someone. And let's come back to the guy, the established one, because you were writing very interesting stories during the week about him. But first few observations on that. You probably send your trainee on a job that wasn't going to have any hitches. Um, and secondly, he goes into the bar. There's no problem with recognition. There's no problem with which direction to turn. Suspicion that there's somebody in there who's told him exactly where Fox is. They appeared to have someone within the bar who had given them the exact location he was sitting in. It wasn't as if these two men went in and went, right, where's Sean Fox? You know, where's Foxy? Um, and there would have been a whole disturbance within the bar then. They just walked straight up to him and shot him in the head. So, you know, when you you, you know that, you can see this was extremely carefully planned. Um, the logistics had been worked out clearly very far in advance and they knew exactly where their target was sitting. They knew to go straight to him. Um, and, you know... We've seen CCTV footage of these sort of things in the past. I don't think I've ever seen footage where someone is killed and from the time when the people entered to the time when they left, till they fired 20 shots in a very busy bar with around 100 people in it, that it's taken 21 seconds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, Swift's of sort of the Regency style uh organization there and also the fact that this is in a bar it's there's a huge gathering of people did they flee were they completely terrorized or were they just sort of frozen in shock and obviously it was clear the gunmen had left they'd got their target nobody did anything i mean a lot of people jumped for cover no one attempted to intercept or try to confront the gunmen um they were able to leave um unhindered in that respect a lot of the people in the bar would have known um, Mr. Fox very well. He was a, a youth footballer. He had played football for the Donegal Celtic Football Club. He had aspirations at one stage of being a, a professional footballer. He played for um, a couple of other Irish league clubs as well. It was the kind of bar where he had really strong family connections, where he had probably been in and out of that clubhouse since he was a child, um, where everybody would have known him where he clearly, despite the fact that he had been warned on several occasions that he was under threat, felt safe sitting in a, a bar in the centre of West Belfast on a Sunday afternoon. Um, because if you were, you know, if I had been told that I was under threat um, and given the fact that he had close connections to Jim J.D. Donegan, who was shot in not unsimilar circumstances in December 2018. So we know that those threats, they're not idle threats. They're threats that could very easily be carried out. The fact that he had the confidence to be sitting, you know, on a Sunday afternoon having a few pints at a bar in West Belfast shows that he felt that the Donegal Celtic was somewhere where he would be safe. And, uh, you know, a habit 
on a Sunday afternoon to go there for the few points. Anybody under threat is warned exactly not to do that. Um, so, well, Nicola, we are women who are not, you know, strangers to threats. And what's the first thing they say to you when they come to your door? Try and change your routine. Don't do the same thing. Exactly. Don't travel to work the same way. Exactly. But obviously he was uh, either too, you know, feeling untouchable or whatever it is. I mean, a lot of these guys do. Um, going back to that hitman, uh, the non-apprentice, the kind of the guy who was training the apprentice, that's just extraordinary. I mean, that is quite extraordinary. But six murders, you believe he's linked to, including that of Jim Donegan, who, of course, was a drug dealer. We haven't, by the way, mentioned that, of course, Sean Fox was a well-known drug dealer and a member of what you call the Marbella crew. Well, Sean Fox was a very close friend of Jim Donegan. Jim Donegan owned a car rental business, which was a front for, you know, his other criminal enterprises. The car rental business in itself even is very interesting because what they were doing is they were buying secondhand cars in England. They were bringing them back here and then they were um, selling them on, renting them at an inflated price to people who had no credit score. Quite often other criminals. So people who would not be able to get a car um, out on finance in any other way were financing cars from Donegan um, and a lot of them would have been people who would, he would have known and associated with other criminal associates um, who had no visible or legal means of income to show to any you know, finance company and therefore they were financing the cars off him. After Donegan was shot dead, there was a lot of people who thought, well, I've just got myself a free car now, haven't I? You know, there's no one to pay anymore. I'm not paying up. He's dead. Um, and Sean Fox took over that. And then there was to try and bring, I suppose, order to that and to start getting the money rolling back in again from that part of their business. But, you know, with all of this, and you'll know as you know this as well as I do, all of these um these criminals, they nearly always have front businesses. But so they set up these front businesses, but some of them appear to uh, be setting up in themselves. And the out of the six killings that you know we that I have linked through my sources and um, this date, three of the people who have been killed were officially car dealers. Right. Yeah, so the, the, the second-hand car dealing business, valet and business, all of that are being used as, as fronts for this. So he took over JD, he was a good friend to JD Donegan, a lifelong friend of his. He took over his business, both the legal part of it and the illegal part of it. And in fact, he moved into Donegan's house in Lisburn. Um, the house in Lisburn had been occupied by Donegan and his very, very glamorous second wife. Um, when I covered uh, JD Donegan's funeral in the middle of West Belfast, his second wife, uh, Laura, stood out like a, a sore thumb. You could have noticed her a mile off. She had, you know, sky-high Louboutins on. She, she was dressed to kill. Um, she stood out from the other people who were there. She didn't hang around for long after he died. She took off to um, Spain with her, her son um, and hasn't been seen or heard of since. And Sean Fox moved into to his house, took over his business and took over from the running of that. Now, he would have known the dangers and the consequences that went along with that. And, you know, and publicly said so on his Facebook page, the Facebook page that's attached to his car business last year, he actually posted saying, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm sick of people spreading rumours that I'm a drug dealer. Um, where I got my car from is none of your business. You know, mind all, mind your own business. He drove, Donegan was shot dead behind the wheel of an £80,000 Porsche. Um, Foxy, as he was called, drove a, a top of the range sort of, um, Mercedes SUV type car with a Foxy as the, the personalised number plate of it. Um, and obviously, you know, these kind of 
people who are mainly young men from very, very working class and humble backgrounds. And all of a sudden, you know, they're having these displays, huge displays of wealth. Um, and, you know, in a lot of cases, I think looking at that in the round, if you look at the criminal enterprise itself and then you look at the associated businesses. Where's your assets recovery? That's the issue that I think that that's, that's something, you know, as journalists, it's really important that we look at because in the South, if you think about what followed from the murder of Veronica Gairn and the setting up of CAB and that that basically decided, you know, we might not be able to form a criminal case around these people, but we will form a civil case around them and we'll remove their assets, hit them where it hurts, take the money. Um, they, currently, we don't have an assets recovery agency. That instead fell to the National Crime Agency who work along with the PSNI. But the fact that they are not removing the assets, that they're not investigating this, these businesses, these front businesses, um, you know, and that a lot of these people appear to act with impunity. And then we hear after they've been shot, the police will say, well, yeah, they were known to us. But if they were known to them, you know, the question would be, well, why were they not being stopped? Why are they not being arrested? Why were they not being put behind bars? And why were these businesses not being investigated? Why were they not being investigated for tax purposes even? You know, we, um, you know, you go to the sort of Al Capone case, if you can't get them on that, get them on the tax, get them on something. Um, and that, I think, forms a lot of frustration around this. And, and in many cases, and, you know, I'm trying to be careful with my words, and I realise there's grieving families here, but that adds a lack of public sympathy when things like this happen because people go, well, why wasn't something done about this? You know, these people are running around living lives that most of us can only dream of in a cost of living crisis. You know, if you look at the, the social media and the Instagram pages of many of their girlfriends, you know, it is lifestyles of the rich and famous. They're constantly on holiday in Dubai, you know, pictured, you know, running around shopping mall, malls, buying, you know, um, Gucci handbags and posting pictures. They've all got the, I know you're going to laugh, they've all got the turkey teeth, Nicola, every yeah. one of them, the beautiful white teeth. Yeah. The veneers from Turkey. Um, and the standout, like a sore thumb, you know, the girlfriends with the huge, you know, surgically enhanced boobs that are driving Range Rovers um, in the middle of housing estates where people are struggling to pay their electric. They're drawn, they're not as if they're, they're, they're hiding. Mm -hmm. You know, it's quite obvious in many cases, what exactly is going on here. But, you know, and of course, then that is having a knock-on effect of the teenagers, you know, teenage boys in particular, I think, are aspiring to that lifestyle. They're seeing it and they're choosing it nearly um, as a lifestyle. It's almost becoming a culture embedded in those communities. But funny, the NCA, since they took over, there used to be the Assets Recovery Agency, ARA, from memory. Yeah. And the NCA took it over. And just a couple of cases I was covering in the UK over the last couple of years, what I noticed is they immediately launch a proceeds of crime case when they get a conviction, a criminal conviction. That comes naturally after. But they yeah. don't seem to be actively going for it before they get those convictions in the same way as they do down here. Yeah. You know, the Criminal Assets Bureau will go after, if they if they had a tip-off on somebody driving around those cars and been a suspected drug dealer, they'd go for them before any criminal case even came. And if that was happening, it would remove any kind of legitimacy that the people who are carrying out these killings then have. If they're saying, well, you know, look look to the South, look to, you know, Drew Harris, a former RUC man, you know, you're not going to get too many distant Republicans praising him, but they're saying, you'll look at that and look what happened with the Kennehans, the fact that they have been basically cut off. And that also feeds into what's happening here in Northern Ireland, because you remember when the Kennehans' supply routes have been cut off, the people who were dealing for them, they sort of fell down the packing order because obviously they couldn't get any drugs in. And what we've seen is the rise of these very young men who have other drug supply routes. You're bringing in drugs from other places. 
the you know the quality may not be the same you know it's it's um it's street cocaine it's not pure cocaine or as they sometimes call it council cocaine um and they're bringing in that and you can see the rise of them and we've seen that as well you know um with groups you know one of the groups called like the Tarmackers, the group of, of, of young dog dealers. And then we've seen lists that were used to being sent around social media. And some of them are very, very young men. But there are people who have just seen a gap in the market after the demise of the Kinnahans, those big, heavy drug dealers who were bringing, you know, who were getting their supply from them. Some of them who had run into huge amounts of debt as well against the Kinnahans because they weren't paying up. Um, but you've also then seen these very young men who are coming in and taking over because they have their own supply routes come up from other places and they have seen a gap in the market. And, you know, I have even noticed in the last, you know, three or four years, the difference in the, those sort of names that I'm hearing being bandied around is who now would be involved in that. And the names that would have been the sort of, you know, for the last 10 years, people who would have been associated with that high level drug dealing are falling down the packing order. So, and is this what happened here? Because of course, Sean Fox and his former associate, Jim Donegan, were were linked associates of the Kinahan. Um Mafia, and in particular, went in their Marbella days when before they they yeah. headed out to Dubai. Although, from what you're saying, they visited there in latter years. But is this murder? Is the motive for this murder supposed to be part of that, or is there a feud going on? No, there's. It's. I don't think it's that, and I don't think that it's part. It's not part of a feud either. What we have seen is that, and this is something that you can look into the the past in Northern Ireland. We have seen way back in the past when it was coming at the time of the IRA ceasefire, we've seen the group Direct Action Against Drugs, which was a front for the, the IRA at the time. They were involved in peace negotiations. Um, and therefore, they set up this front group, which at the time went around and killed a large number of people who were heavily involved in the drugs trade at that time. At that time, it would have been the sort of rave time. So it was ecstasy that these people were selling. It wouldn't have been cocaine. And they shot um, a, lot, a lot of drug dealers, a lot of very high-level drug dealers at that time, and that was seen as a sort of cleaning house almost before they had to then commit to a ceasefire. Remember, with drugs comes guns. And so within the provisional area at that time, there was a discussion about, you know, well, if we leave these people and let them carry on acting as they are, once we're on ceasefire, are we a threat from them? What if they come and try and come for us? So let's just send a warning out and just take half of them out now and the rest will know, you know, to keep their heads down. Um, then in, in more recent times, we have a group called Action Against Drugs, which operate out of the North Belfast, and they have killed two people who they accused of being heroin dealers. They wouldn't be as sophisticated as an operation. It's quite a sort of, it's a sort of red bunch of, of, of people, um, and those killings would have been carried out in a quite sort of chaotic fashion, if you know what I mean. Nothing like what we've seen um, in the killing in the Donegal Celtic or the killing of Jim Donegan. Um, and then obviously you have other groups such as the NLA, who factions of which have been accused of taxing these drug dealers and taking large sums of money off them in the past. And then there's other groups such as the Continuity IRA and Oglin Ahern. Um, Oglin Ahern is officially on ceasefire. But there has been, you know, uh, the police at first blamed the Donegan murder, said it was connected to the NLA, and later then said it may be connected to people who were former members of Oglin Ahern. The motive for it, what my sources are saying to me is the motive for it is basically just these people are drug dealers. They're, you know, you can look at their lovely lifestyles and it looks nice and sanitized, but follow that down the train track, follow that down, you know, go down, 
five, six people removed and you've got, you know, a young person in debt killing themselves. You know, you've got someone with an addiction problem who ends up losing their home and, and you know, um, people living on the street. You know, you've seen the rise in open drug taking in the city centre, all of that. You cannot distance those two things from each other. You know, um, I think that sometimes people think of, you know, that sort of nice sanitised holiday in Dubai lifestyle and they don't necessarily associate it with someone with a very severe drug addiction who ends up sleeping on the street. But as we know, just keep following it down and making the links, you'll eventually come there. So they're saying it's out of some sort of, I don't know, moral crusade to, to rid the world of, of high-level drug dealers. Um, there's a lot of money involved in, in these kind of killing, uh, these kind, this kind of business, as you know, this is high-level drug dealing. Interestingly, that nobody's been killed, uh, you know, is a street dealer. There's nobody who's just, you know, knocking out drugs on behalf of these people. Anyone who's been targeted is either at a very high level, but there was also two killings which were linked to infighting among distant Republicans, which I think, you know, probably gives you a better indication of um, who is responsible or why these killings are happening in this way. I find very interesting also the method of which they're using, which is very similar in each time. You know, years ago, if I'd been covering any kind of murder or attack, the first thing you say to the police is, have you found a getaway car? And quite often, half a mile away, a car will be found on fire. Um, but they don't use cars. They're not using getaway cars, so they're walking to and from these killings. And getaway cars in the past provide evidence. If it doesn't burn completely, you could possibly leave DNA evidence. The car itself can be traced. Where did it come from? Who bought it? When did they buy it? Where was it stored the days leading up to the murder? You know, all of that. Instead, all of these killings have been done on foot. The people have arrived on foot and they've left on foot. Which would suggest they're obviously from the communities and uh, within which these drug dealers are living? Or Yeah, it gives that and it also would suggest that they have a support network of some kind within that community because where do they disappear to? They run into houses and states they're never seen again. That would lead you to believe that within that housing estate there is someone who is willing to let them use their house to come in to change clothes for the guns to be disposed of in some way, um, you know, it gives an indication of the fact that there seems to be a support network to it, which again would link it more to that sort of dissident Republicanism because people then would still um, have some, although it is very low at this point in time, there would still be some support for that and there's more likelihood of them finding, you know, someone within the community who's willing to give them support than if it was just a purely criminal enterprise. Um, you know, we're used to this sort of vigilante summary justice here for a long time. You know, when I was growing, growing up in, in West Belfast, I don't remember ever seeing a police man doing normal police work. The only police I ever seen were accompanied by a full unit of the British Army. You know, people reported their, you know, any perceived crime or alleged crime to some somewhere else. They didn't report it to the police. And, you know, those who were considered guilty of those sort of infractions were dealt with by punishment beatings or kneecappings or on some occasions, you know, executions. And that was all meant to be part of our past. But clearly when something like this happens, you can see the past creeping back into the future. So like cynicism and probably a total lack of understanding really of that, you know, having grown up with that. But do you believe that this is a moral crusade or surely if it is paramilitary groups, they 
I mean, surely they, they're trying to take some of the turf themselves. It has to be about money. Surely everything in that world is about money. Some of these people are paying money to paramilitary groups for their own protection. Um, Jim Dunnigan, J.D. Dunnigan, there was rumours at the time that he was paying up to £10,000 a month in protection money. So it's quite significant amounts of money passing hands. But then these groups too, it's not beyond possibility that within those groups that there are some tensions. And remember, if one organisation starts killing high-level drug dealers who are paying significant sums of money to another organisation, well then... It stands to reason that the rest of the drug dealers would go, well, why am I giving you any money? You can't protect me. You can't do anything. You know, do one. You're not getting any more money. That's the end of that. Um, so you can see if you wanted to, you know, irritate a rival organisation, rather than going down the lines where people would have went maybe 15, 20 years ago of having a feud with them, um, you can instead go around shooting their cash cows instead. Um, and that's going to cause them extreme difficulties anyway. Without and what are they going to do? Are you going to get some, you know, Republican organisation coming out and saying that was our drug dealer? You know, you shouldn't have shot them. Um, so you can see that if there's problems internally among some of those groups, that it would be, um, it would be quite a smart way of taking revenge almost or action against them without having to directly get yourself involved in some kind of nasty bloody bloody feud. Your hitman stroke serial killer. Um, understood to be uh, responsible for possibly six killings. And you're saying Robbie Lawler being one of those victims? No, no, no. Robbie Lawler was, um, we know Robbie Lawler right at the start. It was, it was interesting because the world had just gone into a lockdown I at that time. Robbie well. Lawler was, yeah. And in the middle of all that, Robbie Lawler's murdered in, in um, April 2020, standing in the middle of, you know, hardcore Republican Ardoin, a place that I think was shocked to think that, you know, that the sort of Dublin drop of the gangland world had came to their front door. But Robbie Lawler, there's two people charged in connection with that murder, both of them for Belf from Belfast. But Robbie Lawler was set up by Wayne Cross, Warren Crossan. Warren Crossan's maternal side of his family um, are from the travelling community. He had links in the south and he had negotiated a deal to have Robbie Lawler killed while he was up in Belfast um, for a significant sum of money. And... Um, Warren Crossan was the son of Tommy Crossan, who was a leading distant Republican, a member of the Continuity IRA, a man who I spoke to many, many, many times in the past in his role in the Continuity IRA. Um, and in 2014, Tommy Crossan was shot dead sitting in a hut um, related to a fuel yard that he used to run in the Springfield Road in West Belfast. He was killed by other rival Republicans. Warren would have been quite young at the time, but as he grew up and he became more and more involved in that very serious high-level criminality including and he also ran no shock here a second-hand car dealership he sold second-hand cars as well as being caught you know with a van with a significant amount of drugs in it um warren crossan arranged the murder of robbie lawler and then warren crossan himself was shot dead in the street as he visited his mother's home in st james's in west belfast by two gunmen one who is a sort of a constant, I think, throughout this. And then other times we'll see these killings happening in power, such as what happened in the Donegal Celtic. The two gunmen, he spotted them and he started running. They literally hunted him down in the street in broad daylight and shot him dead in the streets of um, St. James's, where he had grown up. That, I think, is connected to the same gunman, Rob, um, Warren Cross. And I think there's a number of reasons why he would have been targeted. First, the fact that he was bringing that level of criminality from the south up into Republican areas of Belfast. That alone would have been enough to sign his death warrant. 
but also Warren, as he was getting heavier and heavier involved in criminality and clearly himself had access to guns, had been doing a lot of talk about avenging his father's death and going and taking out the people who were responsible for that. And that wasn't going to be allowed to sit, clearly. And then what we'd seen is just over a year later, Warren Crossan had a, an enforcer, a guy called uh, Mark Hall. Hall was big, a big bloke, big in stature, big sort of muscly, thuggish bloke, not very bright. Um, and he had been living in Drogheda. He came up to visit his mother. And again, when you think about that, the gunmen had to know that he was coming on that particular day. They had to know he was coming at that particular time. It shows that there are obviously people who are close close to these criminals who are providing information. Are they providing information to secure their own safety? That could very possibly be um, the truth. And again, two gunmen approached. They fired actually the shots through the window of his mother's house and he died a short time later from his injuries. You can link the same gunmen or team of gunmen because sometimes these people are working in twos to... So far, we've already linked it to J.D. Dunnigan, first of all, to Warren Crossan, to Hall, and to Sean Fox. And then there's two other killings that happened as well in between, and they were killings of former dissident Republicans, people who had been members of dissident Republican organisations and had sort of fallen foul of their, their former um, associates. And that was the murder of Karen Wiley and the murder of um, Donnie McLean. Karen Wiley was murdered in his house in the Lanadoon estate. Interestingly, where J.D. Dunnigan was murdered on the Glen Road, the gunman cut down and disappeared into the state, which would take you down into Lenadoon Estate, where Sean Fox was murdered, the one ran and ran across the road and ran into the estate, which is Lenadoon Estate. Kim Whitey lived in Lenadoon Estate and his gunman made off on foot. There's a constant, even in the area, you can see where these people are operating, where they have control. He was shot dead in front of his, um, his very young daughter. And again, you know, quite... An assassination, basically. You know, he didn't stand a chance. He had fallen out. He'd been a doorman. He'd been, you know, a bit of a heavy. He wasn't the type type of person, you know, to um to take any abuse from people. And he had been threatening and trying to get other people to come along with him to start his own sort of vigilante style organization. He'd been trying to source guns, but he was also alleged to have been an informer and he had put a number of people behind bars and led to the discovery of of um explosives and weapons in the past. So he was riddled with paranoia at the time of his death, which was why he was trying to start up his own sort of small army in, in his defence before he was killed. Donny McLean had been a member of Oglin Hearn of what we would call Owen H. He had served um, prison time in relation to that, but he was on bail waiting on charges where he'd been gathering information likely to be of use to terrorists. And that information was names, addresses, car registration numbers of other senior dissident Republicans. Um, so the inference in him was that he was again going to try and go out and try and take action. He'd been a former member of the British Army at one point, um, that he was going to go out and start trying to kill people who he thought had wronged him. He was living in hostels at the time. He was homeless. He was sitting in his car. He was about to go into the hostel. He was standing in North Belfast when once again, in a very similar fashion, one gunman walks up, CCTV shows him, you know, looks like he's out for a dander, as casual as you like shoots him behind the wheel of his car and runs off, never to be seen again. Um, and so you can see that all of these killings, it's the sort of MO is very similar. How they're operating is very similar. How they're getting away is very similar. But interestingly, we cannot get the police to give us the ballistics in these cases. And the ballistics are key to making the links. Is the same weapons being used? 
I'm being told that there's different weapons being used. A lot of the weapons have no previous history. That in itself is must be really concerning for the the put the, the PSNI because it means that not only are these people organised, not only have they people within their ranks who are willing to go in and murder someone in a bar with a hundred people sitting drinking watching a football match, but they're also getting brand new weapons as well. So that suggestion of that ethnic cleansing, as such, you're talking about, is following through all those cases clearly. Were there weapons found? Or are you looking at the ballistics from the gunshot wounds? There has never been any weapons found. The weapons have never been recovered, you know, but usually if the weapon has been used before, the police are able to tell by the gun itself and by the markings on the gun that that was used in an attack. You know, most, more recently, a guy was um, sent to prison for having the gun that was used to kill um, Larry McKay in a, in a who was standing at a, a riot in Derry and that gun in court, they were able to say that that gun had been used in X amount of previous attacks, including a number of kneecappings um, of people in Derry and all sorts. So the gun itself tells a story and it tells a story as to what organisation had the gun at what time, what area that weapon would have been in at that time because you can link it to previous attacks. The fact that there's either no ballistics history on these weapons or that the PSNI are not being forthcoming and giving out any ballistics in relation to these weapons um, my sources say many of those guns were brand new, straight out of the only out of the, the box, you know, and that's why we're not getting any ballistics on them because there isn't any. And um, the background of your hitman, you believe, was involved and linked to those. Is what sort of age group do you believe he is, and was he part of that direct action against drugs, or or was he INLA? He wouldn't be old enough to be be um, from going back to the sort of professional IRA time, because I mean. I think that anyone can see when they look at the CCTV of all of those killings. In the Donegan case, we can see a gunman who walks up and down the Glen Road and then runs off. In the you know the murder of Sean Fox, we can see them swanning into the DC, you know, as casual as you like, and then jogging back out again. Um, and some of the other killings, the CCTV, you can see they're you know either both or one are younger men. You know, they're definitely people who are you know below the age of forty. They're physically fit. You can see that. You know, they're running off and you can see that they're, you know, people who are athletic and build. Um, you know, they're not old men. This is not old provost, you know, out getting revenge. These are, you know, young, physically fit men who are able to jog off whenever they, they finish killing someone. And uh, the money behind, because it obviously you have to pay hitmen and... You know, there has to be money somewhere in this as opposed to just... You see, I think that this is where our world, our two worlds differ, then, Nicola, because we have people who are quite willing to shoot people for no money at all. We come from a place where people shoot people for a cause, you know, and and um, they're not doing it for, for money. They're doing it um, because they believe that they have some moral justification or that in the, you know, that they believe that the PSNI aren't doing their job and so therefore they're the defenders of this community you know, people who will go around shooting criminals. There's a lot of money that's clearly changing hands behind the scenes. There's protection money being paid to some groups. But but I think that we can establish just by the fact that they're dead, that the, you know, the people who've been shot dead certainly weren't paying protection money to the, the people who ended up killing them because, you know, the, the end result, you know, shows that. But yeah, I, you know, I live in, I live in a world where people have murdered um you know, when they've planted bombs and they've killed people and they're not doing it for money. You yeah, know? you see, things have just got maybe darker down here or something and maybe uh, your, your <laughs> guys are nicer than our guys. They've, they've at least got... Well, no, I don't think... They're certainly not nicer in, in terms of what they're doing. I think the, the end outcome is the same. The motivation might be slightly different. I think that what disturbs me is when you do hear of like hard hits or hits for money, 
the the very what seems to be the very small sums of money sometimes it changes hands which shows you know that life is not valued at a great deal um you know we're not talking about people being paid you know 150 200 grand for a hit you know they're being paid what a small sum of money it might take you to might take you to Marbella for but a fortnight but apart from I've that I've always thought that way they do a hit and they have enough money to go on a holiday and buy a couple of girlfriends a couple of handbags and then they're back to work Fairly quickly. Back to square yeah. one again. Yeah. Um, but look, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, we, I'll, I'll just finish because I know you're you're busy. So uh, what I wanted to say to you was, and we spoke about this on the phone together, so let's talk about it now while we're recording and everyone else can hear us. Um, there, You feel there isn't enough of a political reaction to this, of a reaction that it's just, okay, the PSNI are investigating, um, you know, but there isn't, enough of an outcry. I mean, this happened in essentially a public, this isn't a private club, is it? The the, the Donegal Celtic Football Club. No. So this happened in front of 100 people. This should have been as shocking and outrageous as the Regency Hotel. I just think that there's a completely different reaction when murders happen here anyway than when they happen in the South. I mean, as you point out to the Regency, the Regency became, you know, a national incident, a national outcry. And that was, you know, you can directly link what happened to the Regency to the fall of the Kennehans. You know, there's a line that you could draw in the straight line that goes from one to the other. Um, whereas these killings have been taking place since 2018. There hasn't really been any um, political pressure brought to bear. And I, I, I mean, we mentioned earlier the murder of, of Veronica Gear, and then there was, you know, what happened and the reaction to that and the reaction that which you can still see in your work today because, you know, CAB are so important in terms of what happens to those criminals and how they're dealt with and hurt, taking the, you know, where it hurts. I always find, you know, if I write about somebody, um, you know, and other journalists have said this as well, you can write about these criminal groups or organisations all you like, but if you start writing about where their money's coming from, you can be sure you'll get a knock on the door from the cops to tell you you're under death threat from them because they don't like anything that involves their money. Um, when Martin O'Hagan was murdered, you know, a Sunday World journalist worked for the same paper as you did, I think in that case it, it was probably about three or four weeks before the, you know, the, we even heard the Secretary of State, you know, putting in a statement of, of condolence. There was nothing done. His killers were never brought to justice. Um, you know, at one occasion, one of them who was involved in that murder was given immunity for prosecution um, as long as they would provide information on their, um, the other people involved in that murder. And the case was dropped. He never gave a single day's evidence, but he currently resides somewhere in witness protection. You know, and so the result of that and the different reactions to that, I can see a completely different reaction when things like this happen up here. It'll be a talking point. If I left the house now and went down to the shop, someone will stop me and say, God, what do you think about that? But you don't see it making, you know, major political headlines. You don't see people coming out and demanding that something's done. There'll be a police press um, conference. They'll say, God, this is terrible. Isn't this awful? If anyone's information, will you come and, you know, give it to us? But we don't see those major crackdowns like you see in the South. And, you know, if there was those major crackdowns against those drug gangs in a similar way, well, then there would be no moral justification for anything that's going on here. And then it takes the wind out from underneath any group that's setting itself up as some sort of vigilante or defender because they no longer have justification for that. So the two things follow that if you deal with one, you'll deal with the other. Um, and it seems to me like a no brainer, but you know, will not say because J.D. Dunningham was murdered and his business passed hands into another member of his criminal gang. It wasn't dismantled, you know, it wasn't investigated. 
it just passed hands onto someone else. And is there anything left of that gang? Is, will anyone try and avenge their deaths? There's quite a few of them left in what we call the, the Marbella crew. Um, and that is just due to their own stupidity and posting pictures of themselves, swanning around Marbella on holiday, you know, living up the, living up the high life. Um, you know, it, it, you often wonder, do these people, you know, do they never watch gangster films and how people are caught? It's, you know, stuff flashing your wealth up around the place. But there's quite a few of them left over. There's a couple who come from the Short Strand, which is a very small enclave in East Belfast. They would have, you know, I would say they would have concerns. We know that they had something of a meeting or a summit this week to discuss what they're going to do. Anyone within that group who starts saying, well, let's go and avenge them, let's go hit back, they would be in a very shaky position because it's clear there's someone within that group who's picking back information to the gunmen who are killing, you know, their fellow criminals. Nobody knows who that is. So if you're the guy going, well, why don't we hit back? The person that you're saying it to could be the person that's going to go and go, such as such as he's going to come for you and kill you. He's going to be next on the list, isn't he? So they're, they're, they're riddled with paranoia at the minute. Some of them have legged it um, already in the past couple of days. They're not nowhere to be seen. They're not at home. Others, I think, are very, very nervous as to what's going to happen. Some of them were um, driving private taxis as a sort of front, you know, to say, well, I have a legitimate job, here it is. Although they weren't doing much taxiing, um, I doubt that we'll see them at work anytime soon. So, you know, there's the, it has put paranoia within that. But the fact is, if you've lived that kind of lifestyle, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, the drug dealer's life, you know, the good-looking girlfriend, you're not going to go back to, you know, working in Tesco or, you know, driving a taxi and having to worry where you're getting your patrimony money from this week. It's it's very difficult to move your standard of living back down to what it used to be. So some of them might go to ground for a couple of weeks or a month, but eventually they're going to say, I need money, you know, and they're going to go back to what they were doing before. It's incredible. Well, listen, Alison, thank you so much. No problem. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.